Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. This is Brad Block from the Physician's Guide to Doctoring Podcast, and this will be my last month here. But if you like what you've heard, you can continue to find me at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or just search for Physician's Guide to Doctoring on any podcast player. As for the Financial Residency, they have some interesting ideas planned, so make sure you stay tuned for more great content. And now for the podcast. Moshe Safran is the CEO of RSIP Vision US, a health technology company. He leads RSIP's business development for the United States, which represents the company's largest market. He works with the company's partners to power their products and services by developing AI and computer vision modules. He also oversees customer communication and project management while providing expert guidance in algorithm development, planning, and execution of new projects. So we discuss the role of artificial intelligence or machine learning in healthcare like which specialties are going to be the most affected, where he sees it taking us in the next decade, how they collect the data for the machine learning, and how, as always, if something goes wrong, the liability falls solely on our shoulders. He's an experienced R&D leader in computer vision algorithms, from hands-on research and implementation to project management and business development. Moshe received his BS in physics and a graduate degree in computational neuroscience from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. This is our first episode on AI, and it's a super interesting one. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Moshe Safran, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Brad. Glad to be here today. So let's start out with a definition of AI, because I don't quite understand what it means, as opposed to just using like an algorithm. Could you define AI and help me understand it a little better? Sure. So AI or machine learning, if I need to say it in one sentence, I'd say that uh, machine learning or AI is the art of teaching computers how to solve problems. Why teaching? So in classical computer programming or classical algorithms, so you start out with a question or some problem you're trying to solve and you provide instructions to the computer. Computer will follow your instructions after it's programmed and it will output the answer. So it's like a cookbook, right? So if you want to bake a cake, you have a goal or some problem you're trying to solve, you have X ingredients and you do a very predefined set of actions, then at the end of the recipe, you get your result. Now in AI or machine learning, it works a little bit differently because we're trying to solve fairly complex problems here, problems that the, the human visual system has sometimes learned to solve over you know millions of years of evolution, we do it a little bit different. So we don't have a predefined set of rules or instructions for solving the problem. Rather, we go the other way around. So you start with problems and you start with examples of the solutions to those problems. For instance, if you're trying to teach a computer or a machine learning system to distinguish between dogs and cats, you provide it with examples of images of dogs and images of cats. And then you use that set of problems and of examples of the answers to those questions and use those to learn what the instructions actually should be what the methods actually should be. You train a general purpose machine to modify its rules until you get an effective system. So you don't know in advance what the specific rules are for solving this complex problem, but rather you learn them from the data itself. It's sort of analogous to the way the human brain learns. So the human brain has many billions of synapses and it's constantly learning. There's plasticity. It's constantly modifying the weights of those synapses. And that's how the learning process works. So there are analogies here. 
So right now, in what capacity is AI being used in healthcare? In healthcare. It's a fast-growing field. We're very happy to be in this place at this time. There are a few uh, areas here. So one of the common subfields is uh, radiology, diagnostics, triage. This can be anything from automatic measurements, for instance, uh, automatically measuring uh, the ejection fraction in an ultrasound scan. So instead of having to manually measure that or segment that, the AI or the computer algorithm can do that. Automatically flagging possibly uh, suspicious cases or important cases like sifting through uh, thousands of CT scans and finding one that hemorrhage or some suspicious lesion and bringing that to the attention of the radiologist more quickly and reducing uh, the workload, reducing the cognitive load for the radiologist. So that's sort of on the diagnostic side or on the radiology side. Uh, then there are other use cases. And at RSIP, we work mainly in the interventional and the surgical sphere. And these, uh, we typically like to split it into three topics. The first one is surgical planning. That can be, for instance, creating a 3D bone model from regular x-rays to help an orthopedist plan orthopedic surgery or automatically finding anatomical landmarks in a CT scan to plan where to put an implant. That's the preoperative planning side. And there's a lot of automatic image processing that can be very helpful for this. Then there's a navigation or intraoperative aids that can be showing patient anatomy on an intraoperative video feed or an intraoperative uh, C-arm shot. It can be providing a safety warning during a surgery, tracking uh, the use of tools during a surgery. And then there's the third aspect, which is analytics. Because there's all this data that's being collected, both from the preoperative imaging and also during the procedures and during the surgeries, and there's data about sometimes even about the outcomes of these patients or about the treatments, at least, that a physician selected for a particular patient, that data can be leveraged to provide insights, right? So if you have data from thousands of cases and information about those patients' images and maybe about their pathologies or about surgeon choices, you can leverage that information and use it to eventually recommend best practices based on thousands of cases of other physicians. So that's also a very up-and-coming, I'd say, use of AI in healthcare. I'm an ENT, so we use image guidance for our sinus surgeries, and there's probably going to be a use mm -hmm. for ear surgeries with mastoidectomies at some point. I'm not sure if they're using it there yet. So I'm definitely going to be asking you more about that. But you bring up these use cases, which means that you need to have taught the computer before how to think about these problems. And so my question is, where are you getting this information from, right? Because if you're trying to teach a computer mm -hmm. how to read facial expressions, all you do is go to Facebook. Yep. We've given them tons of our pictures to use and or Snapchat or whoever it is that has our faces that we've willingly given them to use for billions of pictures. But healthcare is protected, right? You can't just dive into a health system's image data bank, or can you? That is a challenge in healthcare and in medical image processing and medical AI. The healthcare data sets tend to be smaller, sometimes much smaller than the general use case data sets that just come from the internet. But there is data that comes from clinical studies or from surgical planning systems, from intraoperative systems, in which the patient did provide the proper consent to use their data in an anonymized way to train AI. So there is a data. In some fields, it's easier to get it. CT scans are, for instance, uh, quite widely available these days. In other fields, like the surgical video, it's much harder to get data, the proper consent and with the proper authorization uh, for use. So that's definitely a challenge. Again, it varies very much depending on the modality and the use case. And that's the first type of data. Now, the second type of data, even if you've got the input or some uh, training set for the input, the second type of data is also the answers, right? So where do the annotations come from? Where does the ground truth for which pathologies we're actually seeing in this image? Or what is the right 
segmentation, the right model of this patient's anatomy. At our company, we have a team of MDs and specialists who create that ground truth. Sometimes you can automate it, but that's another challenge. Actually, even if you have the images and you have the scans with the proper consent, etc., how do you create the right answers to teach the AI? How do you curate your ground truth, sometimes from hundreds of images and sometimes from many thousands of images? How do you detect the errors in your annotations? Because sometimes at some point, when you have an AI system up and running, it starts finding the errors of the human annotators or even of the specialists. There are other challenges, right? So in some fields, it's very clear cut, right? If you want a bone in a CT scan, it's quite clear cut which voxels in that CT scan are bone and which are air or soft tissue or whatever. Now, in other cases, it's less clear cut. So if you take an ultrasound clip or colonoscopy and you give it to three different experts and you ask them to segment a certain part of anatomy or even to classify the image, they will not always agree with each other. So that's another challenge here on the ground truth. There's actually a intra-radar reliability that's baked into the problem, and you need to take that into account to understand how to train your AI on clean data or as clean as possible data and how to validate it correctly versus what's actually achievable even by human performance. I hope that answers your question even in part, but that's definitely a challenge we run up with on a daily basis and how to get enough data of the right kind with obviously the proper consent, et cetera. Speaking of consent, if AI is being used in the operating room, does it require a special type of consent? Or if a radiologist is using it to read CAT scans, does the patient need to be made aware that AI is assisting them? Now, granted, this is a legal question. So, you know, based on your experience and what you've seen. Yeah, again, I'm not a domain expert on the legal aspects or on the, even on the regulatory aspects. What I do know is that almost any surgery or intervention will require some kind of consent. And what we see when we run up against the regulatory aspects is that the regulator is less concerned whether the methods you're using are AI-based or ML-based or whether the methods you're using are classical uh, algorithm-based or based on, as I said, a predefined, simplified set of algorithms or instructions. What the regulator is concerned about is the solution effective, right? So you have to prove that the algorithm is working as expected. You have to validate it correctly. You have to show which data you've actually tested this system on, what types of patients, what types of uh, pathologies uh, went into the training data and went into the validation data. On the regulatory side, the concern is more about just like any other software system or computer-aided surgery system, is just proving that they're working effectively and that they were tested on the right types of cases. More so than there's not much bias these days in favor or of or against using AI versus using other technologies. Because really in image analysis, AI has really become the state of the art. And it's clear that it's usually the most effective way to go. Again, the concern is more about the validation itself than less about what particular technology someone selected to implement their solution. Being used in radiology, I would think it would also be used in pathology. Yes. Right? They're looking at slides and they need to be able to identify what they're looking at. And I would think machine learning would be able to assist in that. Yeah. Digital pathology is a huge field. We play less in that area. But sure, there are companies that have amassed copious amounts of data and of slides in digital pathology and are automating those workflows. And those, I think, from what I've seen, those workflows can be extremely uh, labor intensive and also involve uh, intraider uh, reliability issues. If you have a human uh, pathologist's annotate slides or count cells or even classify pathologies, they will not always agree with each other. And there are companies like PageAI, PathAI, and others that are doing a tremendous amount of work and contribution in that area. So it's also a very active area for AI, for sure. As an extension of the liability, the consent, right? Does the patient need to be aware that you're using it? Mm -hmm. Then there's the liability question, right? If a patient has an adverse outcome and AI was involved, has a technology company ever been held liable as far as you are aware, or is it just seen as an extension of the 
physician, and ultimately it's the physician's sole responsibility. Yeah. So again, my, my expertise is, is on the technology side, less on the uh, legal side. Nevertheless, what, what I can say also from my perspective as a technologist is that the place that AI is today, so we can make an analogy to uh, the automotive uh, space, for instance, right? So in the automotive space, my car and probably your car also have uh, some driver assistance features. This is a high risk area. This is an area where there's been a ton of investment uh, in AI, lots of work with images, and many companies are trying to build various levels of autonomy into their vehicles. Now, the the place where medical AI is today is I'd call it at the driver assistance level, right? So the physician is on the drive in the driver's seat is in full control. They have their two wheels uh, on the steering wheel and the technology or the image analysis is providing an aid for that physician. So the physician is shown always what the system is exactly seeing and where that input is coming from. And the goal is to provide tools that will uh, reduce the human le level of human error and improve safety. But the decision itself is always in the hands uh, of the physician, him or her. At, at this stage, we're not trying to create a robotic uh, surgeon to replace a physician or anything like that. We're trying uh, to uh, provide tools uh, that are a visual aid for the surgeon, uh, that are an aid uh, to enable the surgeon or the physician to access the tremendous amount of data that is there about these procedures in an efficient manner and in an intelligent manner. Yeah, that's my perspective. That's what I know about this from our uh, vantage point. Speaking of vantage point, let's talk about your vantage point, right? With RSIP Vision. So what does RSIP Vision we create the computer vision software that helps with medical use cases like the ones I described above. So again, more around the interventional and sur surgical use cases. So using images and elevating images to improve uh, surgical planning or provide uh, uh, navigation or, or registration of different types of images during a surgery. And the way we work is we partner with the uh, medical device companies that can be uh, big uh, medtech corporations, it can be startups, to integrate our technology into their medical devices and provide uh, differentiating features for their products. Th this is uh, the way we work. We're a technology-focused uh, company, but again, in the discipline of uh, medical use cases. So you're the software company and Medtronic or Stryker or someone like that would be the, or Olympus would be the hardware company. Yeah, without naming names, that, those are the types of companies I'd say that we tend to work with. The big, the big guys in medtech have a very big advantages, right? They have a, a market access. They have many cases they are already in the OR with some type of hardware, some type of tower or uh, whatever it is. Many times they want to apply AI and upgrade their products or provide novel capabilities. They don't always necessarily have all the in-house expertise or the bandwidth to create those capabilities. And we have all this accumulated experience from a couple of decades of being in this field and multiple projects that we have going on in parallel at any given time. We can come in and understand what the user needs are coming from the industry and coming from the medical world. And then even sometimes provide new ideas that this technology that we have can provide added value to those products. And what is your specific role at RSIP Vision? So I've been with RSIP Vision for uh, quite a number of years. I've served in multiple roles in the company. And my background originally actually was uh, from physics and neuroscience. Many years I was in uh, R&D and research, managing R&D teams, uh, managing our entire R&D center. And over the years, I've become a kind of a generalist. So my current role, I sort of lead all the outward facing aspects of our companies of activities. So that starts with our overall strategy. What do we focus on? What are the applications that we should be going after? Which industry partners we should collaborate and creating new collaborations with various strategic partners in the medtech industry? My role is to bridge the gap between the technology and the capabilities that we have in-house and to bridge the gap from that to understanding what the needs of the industry are, what the needs of the end users are, and figuring out how to get those initiatives off the ground and get things done. So if we have any trainees listening right now, right, med students, maybe even pre-meds, 
and they're thinking about what field they might go into. Which specialties do you think are going to be the most radically changed by the involvement of AI such that by the time they're finished with their training, it might not look like what they thought it was, which by the way, for the trainees out there, it's never what you think it's going to be, but their life is going to be different from the attending's life right now. I don't think any medical specialties are really going to become uh, obsolete. So I think on the contrary, actually, that it's going to just become a lot more interesting and creative to be a radiologist or an orthopedist or a general surgeon than ever before. And this just speaking from our experience of working with these specialists and collaborating with them in the different disciplines, it's, it's very enjoyable and interesting from both sides. And the physicians are going to get an opportunity to apply new technologies and also actively participate in developing these new technologies and evolving them. I don't know which particular specialty will be more revolutionized or, or less revolutionized, but I think across the board, nobody's going to become obsolete. On the opposite, I think it's going to get a lot more interesting. This last question is going to be a two-parter. One would be, where do you think AI is going to be taking healthcare? What do we have to look forward to in the next, say, five or 10 years? And then if you had your way, where would it go? What would be your hope for what AI would do for healthcare? As I sort of mentioned before, from our vantage point, the main focus is providing better tools for physicians to have more accurate procedures or quicker procedures to access that accumulated knowledge. But beyond that, beyond creating uh, computerized tools for uh, surgery and for interventions, another advantage that I'm hopeful that AI and computer vision will provide is to improve accessibility to good standards of care. For example, uh, there's a point of care uh, ultrasound, right? So all of a sudden, ultrasound imaging is, is accessible in many more environments than it was in the past. And image analysis and, and computerized image analysis is important there because the users of those ultrasound devices are not going to necessarily have the same expertise they have in the past. Another example of accessibility is what I mentioned before, 2D to 3D reconstruction. So generating 3D bone models from 2D x-rays. So in the US healthcare system for orthopedic surgery, for instance, there isn't always reimbursement for a CT scan. And there are disadvantages to CT scans, obviously, because uh, it's uh, more radiation, so maybe uh, patients uh, will be hesitant to undergo a CT scan. On the other hand, if you have a 3D uh, anatomical model, you can use that to have very precise planning. You can do patient-specific cutting guides. You can use that perhaps eventually for uh, robotic surgical planning. So AI can bridge that gap, right? So you have a, a relatively low-cost, very accessible type of imaging, and then uh, use AI and computer vision to provide higher added value from those types of images. I hope that's also uh, sort of an advantage that, in general, that uh, the space can bring to bear and to help uh, patients with. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. Where can people find you or and or RSIP Vision online? Sure. So if you write RSIP Vision, you'll find our website. If you want to find me, I'm a lot on social media and mainly on three types of social media. So LinkedIn and LinkedIn. We also have a YouTube channel, actually, with uh, many nice uh, videos. So that's a good visual way to get acquainted with the type of solutions and the type of work that we do. Yep. And very happy to hear from your audience, Bradley, feedback and take any questions. And yeah, appreciate your having me on your podcast today. Well, thanks so much for your time, Moshe Safran. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.